This Front Row Rugby episode appeared originally on YouTube. Our guest on Front Row Rugby today is former Springbok captain, Cornet Krecher. Cornet, it's lovely to have you on. Thank you very much. Great to have a chat to you. Cornet, let's uh, start before your Springbok career, because there's something, it's a bit of an anomaly. There aren't too many Bok players who were born in Lusaka. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I was born in Zambia and my, my parents, um, at the age of four, decided to send me to to um, to Paul. Well, they actually were looking for schools. They were looking, they started a great college in Bloemfontein, which is a little bit closer to Zambia, and uh, made their way down to Cape Town, where they applied to Paul Boys High and to Paul Gym. And my grandparents at that time, on my mother's side, were living in Paul. So they decided to send us there. And we, um, Paul Boys High answered first. So I went to Paul Boys High and yeah, the rest, as they say, is history. But it was it wasn't it wasn't very easy to go to um, school in Paul at the age of four. Um, you know, that far away from from your home. I can just imagine. Okay, let's fast forward then to 1999 when you made your debut for South Africa against Italy, and you also skipped the team on that occasion. How special was that for you? Yeah, look, I was I was involved with the team for a while at that stage. You know, in in those days. You didn't just get a test match, you know. If you were on the bench, there was the guy really had to be badly injured for him to come off. So in the end, um, you know, I'd been involved with the team for quite a while, and then I was picked in 1997, you know. So and 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 then I injured my my knee, so I missed out on that, and then went on the tour. After that, the year after that, and then obviously 99 was opportunity for me to to make my debut. And it was in Durban, and Gary Tyson got injured, and Nick Mallet asked Rusty Rasmus if he wanted to be the captain, and Rusty said no thanks. And then he came, he came to me and said, "Corner, do you want to captain the team?" And I, I just said yes. I didn't even think about it, you know. So it was a natural progression from all the teams I'd I'd captained up from there. So yeah, to captain your team on a on a debut is not, uh, the Springbok team on a debut is. It's not, not an easy thing, but often, you know, you're mostly thinking about the team and the referee and what you need to do and not focusing on your own game. But luckily, we won that game by 101-0, which was a record at the time. Not a bad first test match as skipper. But then things did kind of go in the opposite direction, not for you as a captain, but for the Springboks. Because just a few test matches later, we were beaten quite badly in New Zealand, 28-0. But it was only 6-0 at half time. What went wrong in the second half of that test? You know, a lot, uh, a lot went wrong beforehand. You know, but... Things don't just happen on the field. You know, there's a build-up to certain things that happen. And, you know, I'll never forget, it was my first, it was my debut test match against the All Blacks in in New Zealand. And um, I played a full 10 minutes of the game where I bust my knee again. And um, we, had, we had two very young uh, uh, players in our team, um, Khafi and Van um, Uslan. Dave Van Nusselen and Khafi, and, and Khafi the toy played at Flauf, so they're, they're young 9 and 10, and very talented kids, but, but obviously not the experience, and when you play in, in New Zealand, it's very difficult, and we played them in Dunedin, the House of Pain, so it was the House of Pain for us that day, but, you know, just the build-up to the game and the pressures that come with playing in New Zealand, you know, I think 
as a, as a collective, as the coach, the the players, everybody got a bit of stage fright and got a bit you know nervous and made mistakes. And in the end, when you make mistakes against the All Blacks, you pay for it. You mentioned the injury there against the All Blacks and ultimately missing out on the 1999 Rugby World Cup. I'm keen to hear from you, given that Nick Mallett spoke to you about or offered you the captaincy ahead of that Italy Test match. Was there any talk of you possibly captaining the team at the World Cup? You know, in the end, um, it, it, it was a possibility, but the um, nobody knew that Nick Mallett was going to um, not pick the Gary Tyson to go to that World Cup. You know, everybody thought Gary Tyson's a sheen as the captain, um, but Bobby Skinsett was playing really well at the time. But you know, if 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 Gary Tyson wasn't there, you know, I would definitely have been in the running. And in the end, they they opted for Yust. Um, and then Yus was in that team that I captained in 2003. So, you know, it's it's you never know what happens, but the t- the timing of the injury was just at a very bad time. You were back in the side in 2000. It's interesting to me that the latter stages of the Nick Mallet era featured a lot of heavy defeats uh, down under in the Tri Nations. Um, why do you think things went wrong? You know, I think you work with the team for a long period of time. And then a lot of the older guys start leaving, and that's what happened with us. You know, we, we the the likes of uh, you know I think look Gary Pagel, um, Gary Tashman, um, you know, Yurst was getting towards the end of his career. Um, Andre Fenter. There were a whole lot of very very good senior, experienced players um, that were. At the end of their career, you know, and and at a certain point, you have you have to make a decision as a coach and say, look, I'm going to pick some young guys, and uh, he picked the young guys, and 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 with that comes a couple of hidings first before you, before you get that experience. But you've got to bleed them somewhere, you know. If you look at 2003, uh, we took um, uh, 2002 on the end of your tour, we took um, Bucky's uh Jean de Villiers played his first Test match. Uh, Skulk Berger was in the mix. All those guys were young, young, young kids. Yeah, and four years later, they won. They won a World Cup. So it takes four years uh, at least to bleed a, a good Springbok player. At some point, they have to make their debuts, right? So Nick Mallet obviously was out after that 2000 Tri Nations. In came Harry Phil Yoon. I think it's fair to say that the performances and the results remained mediocre throughout the Phil Yoon era. You obviously played under Harry as well at Western Province. How did you experience that era? We had a very successful era at Western Province, but Western Province and Somers and and provincial rugby and let's call it. Uh, super rugby is very different to international rugby, and and to be successful on in in one of them at the bottom levels doesn't mean you're going to be successful when you go one level up. You know, so yeah, Harry Harry was a businessman who understood uh, rugby and who understood business principles, and he 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 wasn't wrong in in putting in sort of business principles into rugby, but sometimes you know. Sport is different to business, and sometimes business is different to sport. So, I think the most important thing is that that as a, as a coach, you have to be able to get people together and get them to play for each other. And and that was 
I think maybe that was one of Harry's weak points, you know, that he, he just couldn't get, get the team to be a happy team in a happy environment, you know. So I went from Nick Mallet to Harry and then to Rudolf. I'm glad that you mentioned Rudolf there because that was where we were going to go next. Uh, his first two tests in charge were against Wales and Bobby Skinstad was the captain for those two matches. And then you became the captain after that. What was the story there? You know, Bobby uh, Bobby and I played together at Western Province and, and you know, I've got to give him the credit. He he said, look, let's have a meeting and talk about it. Uh, in 1995, Juan uh, Chapino and Tian Strauss were in, could have been both in the Springbok team. And because there was worries about them, you know, having friction between each other, you know, the one was left out of the team. So, so. Uh, Tian Strauss went across and won a World Cup for Australia. So um, Bobby and I decided, look, we don't play the same game. We don't, um, you know, we don't compete for the same position. So we can, if we're both in the team, we can be both be an asset to the team. And um, and that was a for two young guys to decide that. I think that's quite a, a mature decision to make. And um, we always work very well together. So when he, when I was injured, he was captain. When, when he was injured, I was captain. And we, that's how we, our whole career uh, basically went, you know? So I think I was injured at the time when, when Bobby captain in those first test matches, but then later, you know, I, I came back as captain at Western province. And then, you know, um, in 2000, in 2000 and 2001, we won the curry cups, um, back to back, home, home and away against the Sharks, and Rudolf was the Sharks coach. So maybe he decided he, he thought Corne is a better captain. Absolutely. Okay, Corne. So after Rudolf Strauli's uh, June Test series, uh, as we said, Wales, Argentina, and uh, Samoa at the time, uh, came the Tri Nations. Uh, two defeats down under, a defeat against New Zealand in Durban, and then there was quite a memorable win over the Wallabies uh, at, at Ellis Park. Um, but in spite of those defeats, the performances weren't actually that bad, and it was actually quite encouraging, as I recall. But then, end of year tour 2002, and I know you know where, where, where I'm going with this, but before we get to Twickenham, uh, the defeats to, to France and Scotland, uh, yeah, the performances weren't necessarily the best, but do you think, or, or how much do you think end of year fatigue played in those? Yeah, no excuses, uh, to be honest. There's no end of year fatigue when you play for the Springboks. You, you, you go over there and you, you go and play as hard as you can, and the big thing is that we we took a very inexperienced team across. Uh, um, there were a couple of of the, the players who made their debuts on that on that tour, and I think there's one or two players that actually only played one Test match in their whole life, and there was on that tour as well. So, um, you know, we 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 had a very inexperienced group of players. I was injured, and and Rudolf asked me to come come on the tour because we lacked experience and he needed he needed some experience in the team. And and I, even though I was still relatively young, I I, I went and I, I I just had an operation on my thumb. So I went on the tour, but to be honest, you know, we were a bit like a lamb, lamb to the slaughter in a way because we were very young and inexperienced and, and the older guys had been left, some of them left out and some of them been, were injured. So, yeah, I think Rudolf's philosophy was that he wanted to lead some young players. It was a year before the World Cup, you know, not even eight, nine months before the World Cup. So, uh, in a way, we knew we were going to get 
some some hidings, uh, but we didn't expect them to be that big. All right, speaking of a hiding, uh, 53-3 against England at Twickenham. I know you discussed it in your uh, autobiography, uh, The Right Man at the Wrong Time, but for the purposes of our viewers, uh, what happened that day? Yeah, so we, uh, I actually talk about it quite a lot. Um, it takes a couple of years to recover from, from, from the biggest uh, loss in Springbok history. Luckily, um, Ibn Etzebeth now has that monkey on, on his back. I, I, it took me 16 years, 16 years. Um, and, and I, to be honest, I think 57-0, I think, is the biggest loss now, and that's to New Zealand. But ours was against England at Twickenham. You know, we had a, we, we, as I said, we had a young team. We got fired up. Janusz Labuschagny got a red card within 10 minutes, so we played 70 minutes with, with 14 men against guys who were seven, eight months away from being, being world champions. So we just, we just got a hiding, you know. So, uh, I, in the game, I, I, I made a lot of mistakes um, in terms of just like being over aggressive because I was I was so disappointed in some of the younger younger guys in the in the group that sort of you could just see their their, their eyes were big and they they didn't know what to do and when you don't know what to do just at least try your best you know so I was quite disappointed in that and I thought you know I'm just gonna try and take it all try and do it all myself. Which, which can't work on a rugby field. And um, yeah, I made, as I said, I made some mistakes, which I regretted for many years, but I've apologized, I think, enough times. I think so. Uh, let's move into 2003 then, uh, the World Cup year, but before the World Cup, uh, the Tri-Nations. And there was another heavy defeat uh, to the All Blacks uh, at Loftus in Pretoria. Um, I spoke to Robbie Kempson, actually. He was a guest on this show um, a couple of episodes ago. And he said that he thinks one of the reasons that things went wrong for the box that day was because you guys were staying in Durban and only flew up to Pretoria the day before. Would you go along with that? No, that you, you, you don't mess around. You don't stay at, at, at um, sea level and then go up to altitude 1,800-odd meters above sea level a day before, you know, so... I think Rudolph was also trying things. Um, also, in a way, a relatively inexperienced coach at the time, so he was trying things. And if it if it if it had worked and we'd beaten the All Blacks, everybody would said, "What a genius!" You know. So you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't in in South African rugby, though. Corner, I know you know uh, what I'm going to ask next. Uh, before the World Cup 2003. Uh, there was a little thing that took place called Kampstaldrat. What happened there? The principle was right, you know, the principle of taking players away from their luxury hotels, taking them out into the bush, uh, putting them in a in a sort of military environment where they really struggle and, and there's no cell phones, you can't speak to your mates. And it's it was really hard. The principle's right that if you if you have to rely on each other, you become closer and you and you understand each other better. You know who who moans the most when when there's real pressure and 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 when when you're under under severe physical strain. The only difference was that you know they, they took it a bit far. Um, there were special forces involved who um, who their 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 idea of 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 physical. Um, torture is is very different to the general man in the streets. Physical torture, so I think that was that was one of the mistakes. And I think you know, um, a couple of months out, I think we were two or three months out from a World Cup. You know, you, you want to build players up. You don't want to break them down. 
And unfortunately, these guys just broke us down. A lot of stuff went down that that has been spoken about. You know, we, we did really silly stuff, you know. Um, and as a captain, you know, I, I'd missed one World Cup. Um, and I knew I wasn't going to make another World Cup. The way I played, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't likely. I would never have made that 2007 World Cup. And even if I did make that World Cup, I don't think um, Jake White would have picked me because I was too small. And one of the things I learned there is, as a, a lesson for a leader is like you must never sacrifice your morals and your ethics and what you stand for just to make one thing, you know. And the one thing I really wanted to go to that World Cup, and and I make no stories about it, that we were told in no uncertain terms that if you don't make the camp, you know, you probably, you won't, you will not go to the World Cup. So I stuck it out, you know, and I, and I allowed my players to go through stuff that I probably would never do in in normal circumstances, you know. So I was disappointed in myself afterwards. I, I, I still see some of the guys' faces when eggs were broken on their heads and, and, and the disappointment and the, the torture that they went through. And I'm like, yeah. Kona, you could have been better. It wasn't my proudest moment. But, you know, if you learn from those things and as a leader, you've got, you've got, to, you've got to come out on the other side better if, when you make mistakes like that, you know. So it was, a, it was a big mistake on my side. Did you or the guys ever lose confidence in Rudolph Strauli as a result? I, you know, I wouldn't say we lost confidence. You know, you maybe respect in, a, in some way, you know. It's like, oh... You know, how, how do we get go through this, you know? And maybe you, you never know, you know, maybe there's method in the madness and you go out and you, you beat England in that pool game as as we we tried to do, you know. If we'd beaten England in the pool game, we wouldn't have played uh, New Zealand in the quarterfinal, which would have meant we probably would have gone through the semifinal, you know. So I, I don't think we had a team to win that World Cup, but I certainly believe we could have gone past quarterfinals. Um, but we came up against the all-black team in that quarterfinal that just annihilated us. So we were competitive uh, against England. You know, Johnny Wilkinson at his best was, was you know, we had them rattled for 70 minutes in, in the last 10 minutes they scored a try and, and a drop goal. So, I, you know, to be honest, sometimes you don't know what's going to be good for you. So sometimes if you go through like tough stuff, you never think, you know, maybe we can sneak through... This and, and, and maybe it toughens us up quite a bit and, and we pulled through one game, which was actually the England game. We always knew that if we beat England, we're not going to play New Zealand. So it was always, if we if we lose and we come second in our pool, we're going to play the All Blacks, you know. So you never know. And and, and you've got to go through these things. To, it's probably tri- trial and error. But I think the way things are run now, it's very different and there's a lot, lot more player input and... and yeah, I'd say, you know, again, that's why I read that book over the right right place at the wrong time. It's just, you always want to play for the screen. That's your dream as a kid. You want to be there. But then when you get there, uh, you hope it is a bloody good era. And and then the era just before me was great under Nick Mallet. I mean, the one, I think, 17 in a row, 15. I don't know how many. They the equaled the world record for the most wins in a row. Um, so I was a part of that in a way, but not 100% because I got injured. I was eight for nine months of that. And then, yeah, the era after me was Jake White, Tri-Nations, Champions, World Champions, 
you've half answered my next question, actually. I was going to touch on it. As you say, the book, uh, The Right Man at, uh, at the Wrong Time. Do you have any regrets? Yeah, I do, you know. Um, but, you know, regrets, there's no, there's nothing positive about regrets, you know. Um, I, I do regret that I didn't stand up in, in Kamstaldrad. Well, I did stand up once um, when we were in a freezing cold water in the middle of winter in, in the high felt. And I, I got the guys out of the water. And, and then a couple of gunshots went over our head. So we, we walked back into the water. So it wasn't a, it, it wasn't as if I didn't stand up, but I didn't stand up enough. You know, I should have said, look, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm taking my team and I'm leaving is not, is not what has to happen. And if you want, if you want, you can try and pick another team, but there, there's, a, there's no other 23 around that can be as good as us. So, uh, maybe I wanted again, you know, as I said earlier, if you want something too much, you you sacrifice certain morals and ethics that you you actually stand for, and and that's one of the things that I learned as a leader. You never do that. You, you stand up for what you you believe in, and you walk away. If you have to walk away, and and there's a massive financial loss, or or I don't know, maybe something like a World Cup that you can lose out on, then that's what you do. I can't remember um, after that World Cup in 03, did you retire from international rugby there and then? Yes, I did. Yeah. So we we, we obviously fell out in the quarterfinals against New Zealand. They were a very good team at the time. Um, and then I came back and Rudolph was fired. Obviously, um, the worst performance in it. We had only played two World Cups. Um, on 99, we got to the semifinals. 95, we won. And um, and so that's the worst performance in Springbok history. So, boom, coach is gone. And they were talking about Jake White. And and I knew I knew Jake White's philosophy. I would, wouldn't have fit in there. So I thought, you know what, I'm 30 years, I'm 29 years old. I'll retire from, from international rugby, go overseas for a couple of, a two years, two year stint, because I always thought I was going to stop playing at thirty anyway. I I put it in my mind that I was going to stop playing at the age of thirty, uh, just the way I played, um, because I wasn't a very big guy, too uh, overly aggressive and and just like punch way above my 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 weight category. So yeah, so I retired from Spring Academy. Corner, you've mentioned Jake White twice now uh, and his philosophy and uh, i.e. bigger players. Um, I take it you've got a you've got quite you have quite a strong opinion on that. Yeah, you know, at the time, you know, Hendrik Brousseau was probably one of the better open side flankers in the world. Um, and Jake White just said, no, he doesn't need a, a fetcher. He needs somebody to fetch beer from his fridge. And he didn't pick him, you know. And, and it's a pity because it if you look what's happening now, you know, the, not a lot of people know this, but the overriding rule of rugby, well, maybe I must take it back. What, the only reason why I know this is because I was injured for nine months and SA Rugby only had to pay me for six months. So they said, you know what, jump on the plane in December with all the referees and you go to the referees conference in Australia, Bondi Beach, and I made my way there. So this is the only reason why I know this. Not a lot of people know the overriding rule of rugby. Is the following. It says rugby should be a game played by people of all, all shapes and sizes, which sounds like a very basic thing, but it's a very important thing because if you depower scrum, all the fatties will be out, all the props will be out. 
if you change something in the lineup, they'll take the tall guy out of the lineup. So, so whenever they look at the rule, when they ch- look at changing the rule, they always look what effect are they on on the size of people within the team. If you look at rugby league, it's not very different to our game, but they're all the same size. There's no, there's no size variation. They're all pretty much the same size. Sucky, very fast. So they all pick one one size fits all type of guy. You know, so. That's the amazing thing about rugby. With different shapes come different personalities, come different ideas. And um, so, so yeah. So picking small guys now, if you look at it now, I mean, picking small guys is 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 a trend because the small guys, from day one, they learn how to to uh, ev- evade uh, tackles, you know. So, I mean, currently, Orange, uh, you, can, you can name them. All the small guys, you know, are there, you know. Kocha this is a great example. Kwaha Smith's not a big, massive, big, burly loose forward, but boy, can he run and he can make a difference, you know. So loose forwards, scrum offs, and wings, you know, you know, if, if they don't have to be big to be uh, good. And um, I think that's that's the lesson that we've learned over, over many years. We were obsessed with, with size. Suddenly now we can pick a guy like Kirtley Aronson. Corner, during your era, England, obviously, were the team that emerged as the world champions. The All Blacks were, I mean, they're perennially strong. The Wallabies were very good at the time because they would have been the 99 uh, world champions that won the Tri-Nations 2000, 2001 as well. Out of all of those great players that you came up against, who would you say was the toughest? It's a very interesting question, you know, because... Um, when you ask South Africans who's the toughest guy you ever played against, they often talk about a New Zealander or a guy in England that they played against that was tough. But, you know, to be honest, I, I played it in, in the back end of the amateur era and the first year of the professional era, which was 1996. You know, and the, and the guys like Audrey Geldermeis and Elandre van der Berg, the guys from, from, from the Eastern Cape, I mean, surely they don't get harder than that. Those, I mean, Adi Helmes annihilated people. He, he, his fist was as wide as your head, and if he hit you, he knocked you out. You know, it was it wasn't like it wasn't even a joke. And those days, you could actually still punch guys on the rugby field. So, um, by far the the toughest guy I played against was Adi Helmes, um, because just about how dirty he was and how scared I was of him. And and then um, on the, if I if I look at Tough in my in my in my position because I was an open side flank and 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 I and I, I, I I based my game on on the New Zealand open side because I knew I was too small to compete at any other level. If I played open side, I could get to the ball quickly. I could steal ball. I could slow ball down, etc. So Richie McCall um, was was coming through the ranks at, at my in, in my era I, I, towards the back end of my era. Um, you know, Josh Cronfeld. When I started playing, I played against him. He was he was amazing in that 1995 World Cup. He he was just an incredible player. But yeah, I, I, I based my game around their style of play and how they get to the ball. So it really was a case of I I try to be an open side flanker, even though nobody picked open side flankers in South Africa. And we played with we our open side flanker played with a number six on his back, and New Zealand they played with a number seven on their back. So we were very different. 
it's always been an interesting distinction that for me, uh, you know, the, the, the different numbers on the back, South Africa and New Zealand uh, in terms of the open side flanks. Kone, I think that a lot of this conversation has had a bit of a negative tone, you know, when we spoke about those defeats at Twickenham, Loftus, the 03 World Cup, Kampstraldraat and all that. So I'd like us to finish on a high. So I'm going to ask you to share with us a memorable, funny moment from your time with the Springboks. Jeez. There were there were quite a few, you know. We when you when you go on tour and you you travel in hotels, you travel around the world and you stay in you stay in these hotels, you know. There's always characters within the team, and, and there's always lots of fun fun to be had. But I, but I think about the the wins on the field and 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 in a very specific game, one of the my, my highlights. But it wasn't as a, as a captain was, um, or it could have been. Can't remember. As we beat the All Blacks 42-40 or something at Ellis Park, Robbie Flex scored three tries, and um, you know you, you think about the those 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 moments where we like it could have gone, we could have lost 42-20, you know. But it's just one of those days where things work for you on the, on the day. Your plans work out. You you manage to. Hold on to the ball when you shouldn't hold on to the ball, and and you score the tries, you know. And it was just, but if if I if I look back, um, which is incredible, as the human mind is is, you forget all the bad stuff, right? you forget all the come stardrot horrible stuff. You just remember the good stuff, you know. You remember the the tours and the, and the jokes and on the bus and the you know, yeah, just. Maybe one story I can I can tell you that we um we in nineteen ninety eight I think Nick Mallet was still involved. So we went on a on a tour. Those days you played you played Wednesday and Saturday Wednesday Saturday for four weeks. And one of the guys in our team, he I don't think of his name now. We he was in the reserves all the time, and you know the reserves. At that at that stage, as I said earlier, he never really got onto the field. I mean, some a guy nearly had to die for you to um, uh, for you to get onto the field. So um, Philip Smith was the guy's name. He's a flanker, big guy, and uh, a really good, funny guy. And when you get onto the bus, you have a number, um, not your number that you're playing. It's alphabetical order. So when you go onto uh, this. 32 odd guys and they, they alphabetically you get your number. So I was often number 15 because, you know, K was in somewhere in the middle under Krieger. Anyway, so they, they, um, on, as we got on the bus, everybody was on the bus. They said, guys, number. So number one, two, 32. And, um, this is the third or the fourth week. And, and Philip Smith had been holding a, a, a bag, a, you know those tackle bags for three or four weeks, and he 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 probably had enough. And uh, he everybody shouted out their name, and he and he just he shouted out. And, he, and when he's an Afrikaans guy, he said instead of shouting his name, he said "suck in," and um, everybody pissed themselves laughing because he was like it wasn't his number, but everybody knew what he was t- talking about. You know, he had been holding, he'd been battered. Holding a tackle bag for three weeks and big guys running at you, running over you, bumping you around. 
So he got battered for three weeks. So he, he thought, no, no, suck in is, is, is probably the one. That's a great story. Uh, Corne, I'm glad that we could end on a high. Um, let me just say again, it was lovely to have you on Front Row Rugby. Uh, great to hear those wonderful stories from the old days. And hopefully we can have you on again. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always great to chat about rugby. And, and as I said earlier, you know, I always say to my kids, you know, with massive, with, with, um, massive privilege comes, comes massive responsibility, you know. And it was obviously a massive privilege for me to, to, to captain the team. But with that comes a lot of responsibility. And sometimes you take that responsibility and you run with it. And other times you 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 sort of, you don't want that res- responsibility. But it's always with you. So, yeah, I, as I said, luckily I can, I can forget the bad things and remember all the good ones. Last time on Front Row Rugby, we had 1995 World Cup winning fullback Andre Hubert as our guest. You can go and watch that video. It's appearing on the screen right now. Next time, our guest will be Ian MacDonald. This Front Row Rugby episode appeared originally on YouTube. If you enjoyed this content, please consider subscribing and sharing with your friends. See you next time.